Today on the podcast, Tales from Government, Andrea Campbell is president of the Boston City Council. She's the first black woman to hold the position and is in just her second term on the council. She's been outspoken on a range of issues from public education to criminal justice and diversity, or lack of it, in the city's police and fire departments. But ask her what ties it all together and what drove her to run for office in the first place, and she doesn't dive into the details of important policy points. She starts by telling her own story. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Andrea Campbell is here to tell us that story. It's riveting, uh, heart-wrenching, and also inspiring. Andrea Campbell, welcome. Thank you, and thank you for that wonderful introduction, and thank you for having me. Uh, so you're, uh, you're presiding over the council and uh, in, in your second term, and there's a lot that we could uh, try to get into about what's, uh, what's facing the city and the things the council's working on, but I'd love to tell people a little bit about who you are and, and how that really informs, as I said, the issues you work on and the fact that you're even here in public public life and, and, and have run for public office. Uh, so, uh, yeah. uh, you know, sort of take us back. I know you're a, you're a, you're a, uh, a, a daughter of Boston, born and raised here. Uh, I like that, daughter of Boston, that's right. <laughs> but but uh, um, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess the sort of the most direct way to put it, I guess, is sometimes you talk, uh, you hear people talk about someone who was born on third base uh, in terms of... Uh, you know, people born with a lot uh, of a head start and a lot handed to them. And uh, in, in hearing your story, it, you know, quite candidly, it's sort of, I guess, the opposite of that in many ways. It is. And, and it's interesting that you use that sort of um, analogy or metaphor uh, because it reminded me when I was completing my um, application to Princeton University, um, there was an optional uh, section where you could fill out an essay and um, add anything that they didn't know about you. And I remember thinking, what do I write? What do I put there? Um, and I ended up writing about what it meant or what it felt like to start, or at least, at least I thought that's what my childhood was, um, sort of below ground zero, really. Mm. Um, and, you know, so what was that? I mean, I, I grew up in the city of Boston. I was born and raised here. Um, I never knew my biological mother because when I was eight months old, she actually was driving to visit my father who was in prison at the time out in Walpole waiting for trial. Um, and on her way there, she gets into a car accident. And she had, at the time, my older brother who was two. Um, she dies on the scene and he survives, um, luckily. Um, and then my father gets sentenced to eight years. Actually, I think it was longer than that, but ended up serving eight years in prison. And so my twin brother and I, my older brother, didn't know him until he got out of prison. So during those first eight years, I often talk about the instability in our lives. And my grandmother, we lived with her. This was my mother's mother, who, you know, she was a fantastic woman. She grew up... Um, in, in the South, in Virginia, and, and um, frankly, cleaned houses, you know, and, and worked really hard um, and wanted the best for her daughters, including my mother. 
Um, so when my mother passes away, of course, she's sad, she's angry, she's a whole bunch of things. And she uses alcohol usually to cope with those moments. Mm. Um, and so during those times when she was struggling, my twin brother and I and my older brother were often put into either foster care or, or somewhere. Um, and then we would often put back with her. So it was sort of this cycle of back and forth. Um, and even at a moment of time, we live with a relative we call uh, Ma, um, and her name is Cynthia Watson. She is um, an incredible figure in my life that I often don't talk about, but I have a half-brother, and this is mm-hmm. um, his mother. So we live with her for a period of time. We're in foster care. So we're, we're living with various folks who sort of form our um, existence at that point and, and really help us to grow as children. But and there's a lot of instability during that time. And you were how old when your mother died? Eight months. And so then as... Uh, and that's that gap between sort of eight months and eight years old where we're sort of moving around and then my father gets out of prison and we go live with him. And do you think that, uh, I mean, kids have a, a certain remarkable resilience, not that they don't sort of feel the trauma and the wounds uh, that, that uh, they may encounter, but, but kids kind of sort of take what, what is to be the way things are. I mean, how did you, did you sort of think during those years you know, what is this? Where am I? Where, you know, where, my father's off somewhere locked up and my mother's gone? Or did you kind of adapt and, and think, you know, think, think about I it differently? I think I Yeah. Um, I don't think, I don't think I really noticed right. um, the instability and probably until I started school and you hear about the experience of other children or your classmates who have, say, two-parent households, or if it's a single-parent household, one is not necessarily, the other one's not necessarily dead, right? There's there's right. somewhere, and um, so you don't really see what you don't have. But I, I mean, whether it was my grandmother or Ma or foster care or my Aunt Dot, who also um, was a, a close family friend who took us in at moments, all of them did their best to create a loving, healthy relationship for us. Mm-hmm. Um and to still hold us to certain responsibilities, go to school, clean the house, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I didn't really reflect on it until later in life, in, until I frankly had my own um, son. And when he turned eight months, I remember sort of thinking at that time, maybe it was a trigger of something, I don't know, about what it would mean to him if I just disappeared, right? And this was recently, right? Your this son was, is how old? He's seventeen months, right. and so, and I remember talking to my husband about about that. Um, mm. And so, there are moments now where I reflect on that those past traumatic experiences in a very different way. But when I was a kid, didn't really notice it, um, uh, especially when my father got out of prison. He did his best to always not just stress the importance of education and getting a good education. Um, he was very candid with us um, about what it was like growing up in Boston. You know, he was born and raised in the city himself. Mm -hmm. He was born in Roxbury in 1933. He was 50 years old when I was born. My mom was 25. Another reason my grandmother did not like my father. Mm -hmm. Um, So when he gets out of prison, he's obviously older and he also wasn't a fool. You know, he knew that he wasn't going to live forever. So now he has these three kids who are eight and ten, and he's like, you know, what am I going to leave them with? What imprint? Mm. Um, and it was not always easy living living with my father. He held a lot of anger um, around inequities or 
being extremely intelligent. He graduated from Boston Tech, for example, was an excellent student, um, gets accepted to Princeton University and makes a choice not to go there and, and says, what am I going to do down on that campus with all these white people, frankly. Um, so this was, would have been like in the 1950s. That's that right, 1951. Was, there were not, not a lot of black students at Princeton that's probably right. at that time. And this is 1951, and there's an additional layer for him, which is he's the eldest of seven kids. Father came from Jamaica, a background and an understanding and a cultural understanding that you take care of your siblings as the eldest. Um, so that meant something to him. And so for him, the better option was to go in a different direction. And that led to periods of incarceration um, um, and other things that I think he didn't want for us and for mm. my brothers. Um, and he talked candidly about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also understood that we were grappling with systems, right? It's not just this idea of individual personal choice. Um, I think sometimes or personal responsibility. Here was someone who was doing all the right things, working um, really hard, going to school. He was an altar boy um, in Roxbury at St. Cyprian's Church, mm. doing everything that a young person was called and asked to do. Right. Um, and still found it difficult to get a good job, to live in a neighborhood that you wanted to live in, mm-hmm. um, to do well uh, for yourself and your family here in the city, just like many others experienced during that time frame. So fast forward um, to me, my brother, and my older brother, and um, there's lessons he wanted to impart, and education was one of them. So right. I And you went, certainly did well by that on, yeah. on any score, right? And when he, you know, when we were reunited with him, um, I went to BPS schools like he did. I went to five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blackstone in Roxbury, or now the South End, I should say. Right. Um, I went to the Harvard-Kent in Charlestown, the Bradley in East Boston, the Timothy in Roxbury, wow. and then finally Latin School. And I was, you know, the product of busing. Mm-hmm. I lived in Roxbury in the South End, but yet went to school in Charlestown, East Boston. So I was bussed around. Um, but school was always a safe haven for me because although um, God love my dad, he held that anger. And sometimes he took that out on whomever was around him, mm-hmm. um, either in tone of voice or, or other ways, um, those frustrations with the system. So we saw a lot of that. Um, And so I went to school hoping not only to get a good education um, and to learn, because that was what we were told was important, but also to get out, um, to create something for myself, not knowing what that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had really excellent teachers and mentors and a ton of programming through those institutions that allowed me um, to go to Princeton University and then to law school at UCLA and or to frankly sit here as the first black woman as council president in the city of Boston. Right. Uh, and when you applied to Princeton, was that uh, did that have something to do with the fact that your father had applied and been accepted there? Absolutely. Or, yeah. Um, I had never heard of Princeton before my dad would share this story. And I remember being at the Timothy Middle School, and, and at that time it was Dr. Roger Harris, who was our headmaster, mm-hmm. um, who also had a relationship with my father. And, of course, he too and the teachers at the Timothy wanted us to also be thinking about college even before we left their building to go off to high school. Um, and so at that time, I said, well, if he didn't make it, I guess I can. And so Princeton was always on the list. Um, never visited. Didn't even, I think, at that time, know it was in New Jersey. <laughs> um, 
And so it just always sort of remained on that list. And when the time came to apply to colleges, I just knew I, I wanted to get out of Massachusetts and Boston. So I said, well, I'll apply to Princeton. And that was the only school I applied to. Really? You yeah. applied to one college? I applied to one college. It was meant to be, apparently. And that's where I ended up going. Wow. And you've mm-hmm. talked about um, uh, during the time when you and your uh, brothers were, you know, sort of bouncing around in different homes that there was, in particular, an effort always to keep you and your twin brother together, even if you weren't always able to be living in the same place as your older brother. That's um, right. So there was really, uh, obviously, there was a special connection there. And I And I was struck actually only much later when I learned that his name is Andre. And mm-hmm. so... Andre and Andrea. So, right. I mean, you're connected yeah, every, absolutely. every which way. Absolutely. And my older brother, who has a, a compelling story himself um, that he can share himself, but has a very compelling story, grappled with things that were different. Mm-hmm. Um, my twin brother, the same thing, and things I didn't recognize growing up. Um, but as you look back, um, and, and, you, and they cycled sort of in another criminal justice system, too, mm. um, they had to deal with different things than I did growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I often share with respect to my twin brother, my older brother, uh, I'm sure would have similar stories. You know, I wasn't stopped by the police on the way home from school. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that happening to my brothers, um, even though they were not involved in anything, including my twin brother and him coming home and, and, and just seeing, seeming sad or, um, just depressed. And at some point pulling out of him, like what happened and, and, and speaking to being stopped because they thought that he might be connected to something that happened mm-hmm. in the neighborhood or in some other neighborhood. Um, we also went at some point to different schools. Um, and when he got into trouble, he would often end up at the McKinley School, which still is around. And, right. um, and, you know, you had some good teachers there looking to give social and emotional supports and other things. But he was grappling with maybe past trauma the anger of my father, so many different things, being stopped by a police officer, um, someone pulling out a gun on him, all these different things that I didn't grapple with. And so, quite, it's actually quite interesting that recently I went to visit, recently, it might have been actually early this week or just last week, the King School in my district. Um, and met, well, I was there to read to children in the seventh grade, and the teacher whose classroom was immediately next door knew my brothers, both of them. Wow. He comes into the classroom and stands in the back. And, of course, I'm wondering, like, who is this random guy standing in the back? He says, I'd love to chat with you when you leave here um, because I knew your brother, Andre. I was his teacher. And I met you when you were 11 years old and your father at the McKinley School. He was a good kid. And so I walk out, of course, I'm still – I get goosebumps. Right. And he talked about what it meant to teach Andre. He talked about my older brother – he sent me this lovely email talking about my father wanting to always show them a different way and, and me a different way and how entrepreneurial my brothers were and how they'd sell candy to, to have money for themselves, all kind of things. So it was quite remarkable. Um, but he also spoke to uh, the anger that my brother Andre felt with respect to some things that happened to him that sometimes our young people don't have the space in which to share it. Mm-hmm. And, when- and that has an imprint and can show up in how they, they act. And when you talked about them experiencing something different than you, it sounds like you you mean as as boys, that's as right, black boys growing up in the city, um, and what that what that means 
motivate them, you know, it's still, you know, we're talking about it today. In fact, there's That's even right. a city commission has been, there's been meeting over time, I know, on, on this question. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, whether it's women or, or, or young boys, everyone is, all our young people are grappling with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different, some of those issues are the same, and some of them show up differently with respect to boys of color versus girls of color. Right. We never want to leave them out, right? right. Um, but growing up, I would just often look at my brothers and say, you know, get it together and go to school and you know, I felt like I was almost a mother figure, like, just do your work. Right. It was more complex than that. Um, right. And you don't see that until you gain some level of maturity, which luckily I have gained um, mm-hmm. since since growing up. But then, of course, since losing um, my twin brother. So and talk a little about that, because yeah. I, I know that, again, his story, you know, ended very Yeah, he's the inspiration sadly. in many ways. Yeah, so he – it's crazy. This This month is seven years – um, since he passed away, and he cycled in and out of criminal justice system for various things. But the last time he was arrested, you know, swore up and down it wasn't him. But the the struggle was that he had a disease called scleroderma. Um, it's an autoimmune disease. There's no cure for it. Um, had been doing quite well. Um, gets arrested, and my worst nightmare comes true. He doesn't get adequate health care while in the custody of the Department of Correction which oversees, of course, all of our prisons. Mm-hmm. And he was a pretrial detainee. And I always stress that point because this meant that someone was sitting in our prisons for two years awaiting trial to be found guilty or not of something. He hadn't been found guilty of anything, mm. um, but doesn't get adequate health care, has a high cash bail that I can't afford. Um, and uh, we fight and fight and we ultimately lose that battle. And because of that inadequate health care, he deteriorates in the system over time, loses weight, becomes more vulnerable and weak, um, and then ultimately passes away after two years. And he was 29. and Died in prison or in the custody of the state. Exactly. And at, and at this point, I've already lost my mother, but I've also lost my father because when I was a sophomore at Princeton, I talked to him one morning. He died that same day um, in the evening from a ruptured aortic heart aneurysm. Mm. So you fast forward and then I'm losing my twin brother. So a lot of loss. All of my grandparents are deceased. I've seen a lot of loss. And I think at some point you can easily become sort of numb to it a little bit. But when it's your sibling, especially your twin, especially someone that close in age and that young, um, and in such a sort of gruesome kind of way, I questioned everything. You know, here I am, Princeton alum, a lawyer by this point. I'm living and working in New York, practicing law. And through all of my, whether it's networks, connections, I can't help my brother. Um, And, you know, sat in a space of anger for a while, as you can imagine. Um, And at some point, through a lot of prayer, um, turned this into a source of sort of inspiration to help others, um, but to not just in sort of the reentry criminal justice space, but more in that prevention space, right? What did I have that he didn't? So the question that fuels my work every day is, how do two twins in this city have such different life outcomes? And it's a simple question with I think a lot of different answers. And I'm I'm still trying to discover the response. Um, and and how, I'm and learning how, pieces along the way. How do you kind of reckon with it or as imperfectly, or you said it's still an ongoing process, but Talk a little about yeah, what, I mean, what are the things that that have struck you about that fact of this 
incredible divergence from, uh, you know, people who shared the womb together or shared the same household. That's right. Uh, for many years. So it's sort of, you know, they always talk about the nature and nurture. I mean, you sort of shared the, shared the same. We started out together. Environment. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. And the same sort of, you know, lineage. Yeah, but, and I think um, I no longer blame sort of individual people, right? I think I look at systems as a, as a whole and how do these systems, whether it's the system that punishes folks for something or thinks they deserve punishment, a system of how they treat those who are arrested for something, how they view them, um, systems of education, how they don't show up for the most vulnerable, and the inequities in these systems. Um, mm -hmm. And I try to peel that apart a little bit, not just using my story, but also the stories of many others in the communities I serve. Right. Um, and I focus a lot on criminal justice reform because of Andre and and the how folks could sort of view someone not as almost human. You know, you sort of take the humanity out of it. I remember reviewing records, for example, that I got after he passed and him filling out a form um, because he needed some kind of medication or something in an, an ointment for one of the sores on his feet with respect to his disease. And someone sending that form back and saying, you filled out the wrong form and never actually coming to help him, right? Um, and if we are... So sometimes we get so angry and upset as to how other countries say are treating those who are incarcerated or those who are pretrial detainees, or you talk about Guantanamo Bay or other places. I tell folks, we need to look in our own backyard. Um, the conditions of, in, of confinement right here in Massachusetts or how we treat these quote-unquote pretrial detainees or criminals. Um, at the end of the day, they're human beings. Their siblings, their sons, their daughters. Um, so I focus a lot on the criminal justice piece, reentry, these systems, and hopefully um, getting these systems to show up differently um, by sharing pieces of real stories, right, including my own. Right. Um, I focus a lot on education, looking at those disparities between me and my brother, my older brother. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Burke High School in. Dr. McIntyre is doing such incredible work there that often probably doesn't get the recognition it deserves. Right. We hear a lot about the, she was the troubles that's at, right. the, at the sort of open enrollment high schools in the city, as they're called. And that's a gem. That school is a gem in a lot of ways. You know, it comes out of turnaround status, the only high school in the state to do that. Right. Um, and the woman who was leading this effort was a teacher um, for my of my twin brother, Andre. Mm. He went to the Burke, but at the time, the Burke wasn't accredited which is different, a different standing than Boston Latin School. Yes. Um, and, and so clearly some inequities there. But you had folks like Dr. Mack back then who were working to change a system to show up better for, all, or for everybody. Um, and, you know, I still talk to her about my brother. And so I am looking at how, how do we ensure not only that students have quality education and, and a good school to go to in their neighborhoods and a good BPS school, um, but how do we also um, make sure that the schools that are doing really well in certain neighborhoods, that people are really excited about and proud? I'm, I'm proud when I say I'm a BPS graduate and a Boston Latin School graduate. But I also need us to recognize that there are a lot of folks in our community who don't feel like they have access to a Boston Latin School, um, who don't feel like they have access to a good elementary school, a good middle school. And if we don't give them that access in a fair and equitable way, what then will come of them? 
Um, and so I use my story and others to highlight those inequities and then push the system to show up differently with respect to these families that feel left out, but all of us, because if a system is failing some, it's failing all of us. And we should all sort of be either ashamed or grapple with that in some way and think, how can this show up a little differently? And I mean, it's sort of asking a broad question, but how do you feel we are doing in Boston on that sort of big picture question of, of achieving that, you know? We have a lot of work to do. Um, and I don't mince my words with respect to that. I, I mean, even if you read recently the Boston Globe magazine about a Val and Victorians. I did. That and was a really gripping Absolutely. Series. It was very powerful. And to get these graduates to share their stories so candidly was really powerful and excellent work. Um, and all of them, you know, were the success stories by all metrics. Um, and even they are struggling to make it either through college or to go after their dream that they had for themselves when they were in our system. Right. So, um, so what does that tell us about, you know, their classmates who weren't the valedictorian, who just made it over the line and graduated? Uh, I mean, what, that's what does right. that say about the sort of state of, of, the, the, of the schools? The problem may be worse than we thought. Yeah. Um, and in that we have, to, we have to just shift this system in such a major way. Um, and I think that's true for so many different things but that we don't have time to waste. People, families don't have time for us to wait five years to close the achievement gap. Um, they need these systems to show up for them now. Um, and we talk about the importance of education um, and getting a career and going after your dreams and, and knowing the basics and people holding you to high expectations. Um, we have a lot of work to do, and we can't keep blaming uh whether family, students, and personal choice. No, we have, a work, we have work to do on our end at the bowling building, at the central office, at City Hall. Um, mm -hmm. And that's okay. I mean, I think when people are pointing things out to us that we could do better, we don't have to get defensive. We say, okay, all right, let's do better. Um, and that can be for a small program. You know, I was talking to a group of seniors this morning and at the Dorchester Y, the senior home repair program. Some of them are like, that worked for me. Others are saying that program was a disaster for me, and let me tell you why. The work that was done was not done well. Or after the person died, I had to pay $30,000 as the daughter-in-law of this person. I don't know that they read the fine print when they signed the paper and knew that this loan was going to attach to the home and leave us with this debt. So they're telling us we need to do better. It's not to make us look bad. It's just offering suggestions and ideas, and we have to be open to receive those and do better. Um, and government, sometimes I think, you know, I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in government. We are slow to respond or to take constructive criticism, and we often move slow and waste a lot of resources. And I think there's some things we could learn from the private sector, from the nonprofit sector, in, our, in terms of serving our constituents in a better way. Mm -hmm. And certainly, uh, when you talk about the work we have to do in criminal justice, um, there, there's a whole range of issues there. Some people have been heartened by the uh, recent bill passed on Beacon Hill that mm -hmm. suggests kind of a turn away from some of the policies that people have viewed as, as kind of overly punitive and not really helpful in getting people back and reintegrated in society. And also locally, certainly, there are people who have been heartened by the election of Rachel Rollins as the new district attorney by the city having the first black police commissioner. Um, I mean, ho hopeful 
changes, I guess, in, in your mind, but I, would you still say those are, like with the schools, there's a huge amount left to be done to sort of mm -hmm. declare uh, the criminal justice system uh, kind of having uh, reached, the, reached the kind of level of, you know, fairness or, or, or having the justice in it that, that people think has been lacking? Yes, there's a lot of work to do um, in that space, and I am a big supporter of Rachel Rollins, and, and I've known her for some time as a young, when I, you know, as, when I was a young black attorney coming, coming up in Massachusetts, um, I was involved with the Massachusetts Black Lawyer Association. She ran it at the time and said, come on in, and invited me to different spaces to be able to expand my network so that I could get good careers, um, and was very intentional about that. But, you know, she, along with our, our great commissioner, Commissioner Gross, they, they have, you know, tough jobs because they not only have to do the work, mm -hmm. They have to create a table where everyone feels welcomed to share their opinion, and they know they're open to doing that. And they've differed with each other on some things already. That's right. Uh, that's going to happen. But they still are going to come work together. Um, but they have to talk about race, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about socioeconomic status. No, they have to talk about race. In the history that that artificial construct has done in not just Massachusetts, in this country. Um, when you create terms that say there are certain categories of people that are lesser than another group of people, we're clearly going to, we're in trouble. Um, and, and what's often lost sometimes in this conversation is, of course, our indigenous community as well. And it's a history often that folks don't want to grapple with. Um, but whether it's me as the first black woman council president, Rachel Rollins, Commissioner Gross, Congresswoman Presley, um, who has been doing this even from the council when she was the first woman of color to join the Boston City Council um, before she went down to D.C., you know, didn't have the luxury of not talking about this. Um, and folks in our communities, and I'll say including in District 4, Dorchester, Mattapan, those are the biggest neighborhoods, they want us to talk about these issues in an honest, authentic way because we can't paint the picture fully if we don't talk about sort of the elephants in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and once we paint this, this picture fully, or at least open up a space to allow people to share their stories, we have a better chance of coming up with solutions. And why I'm so passionate in my role as council president, which is going to happen this year, is bringing my entire city council, not just the counselors, but the staff and our incredible team members through racial equity training, so we can talk about that history together. Um, and that folks who identify as Irish or Italian growing up in the city of Boston have their unique history, they should also have a space to be able to share theirs. Um, and I'm hoping that that training will allow us to come up with tools so that we show up in the work with a bit more compassion and understanding for, and I'll put that in quotes, the other, mm -hmm. um, and a willingness to do a little bit more listening first um, before putting forth policies that may not go with sort of how we think about something, but align with the persons who we're talking to, their experience, um, it might be a better solution for them. So we have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, you, you, you've talked about, you know, really your brother's story being your inspiration for deciding to get into public life, run for office. It needed to be something big because I said run for politics, elected, <laughs> absolutely not, never yeah. on my list. Mm -mm. I mean, do you do you ever <laughs> wonder what he would make of you 
being now in this position or, or, or of your parents question. for that matter, including your mother, who you say you really didn't really know being eight That's months old? That's a great question. Um, I think they would be very proud. I think um, I, I know my twin brother would be extremely proud because one of the things that he cared deeply about was this concept of justice. Mm. Um, just, you know, he just wanted some justice. And my uncle said that at his funeral service. He just wanted some justice. That's all that brother wanted. Mm. Um, and that's what I look to do in the work every single day. Um, he also said, you know, sis, you're stronger than you know. And I've had different moments where that's been tested. And I'm like, you know what? He's exactly right. Um, and so I think he'd be extremely proud. But I have to add, you know, I have an aunt and uncle who have, along with many other relatives, I can name so many aunts and uncles, who have been with me every step of the way. Um, an aunt and uncle who I call my parent figures that live across the street from me in Mattapan, where Alexander, my son, goes, right? Those are his grandparents. And um, so I have a network of folks around me, including a younger brother who's in his 20s. He's not so young anymore. Um, that I'm blessed to have a family, right, um, that also show up in this work and who also remind me when I may get off course from my God-given purpose and have to get back on that course, um, all that I've been through, all that my family has been through, and not to forget that. Um, that should give you inspiration. That should give you strength. That should allow you to exercise some courage in going after the things you want and, frankly, getting some justice for folks. Mm-hmm. And... Um and I, I've got to ask you, because I know people will sort of, there, there's the, always the political questions when you sort of talk about what you, you know, go, going for it. Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, you've been asked by people, you know, if you have broader ambitions and, uh, and, and as you say, we've just seen a colleague of yours on the council elected to Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think about what could be next or uh, people have talked, uh, I've heard people talk about you as a candidate for mayor someday. Is that something you entertain, or, or how do you think about that? I think, you know, most folks know I'm a very spiritual person. I pray on anything and everything. And even when I just, you know, said, do I want to be council president? I prayed on that. If God said no, I wasn't doing it. Um, so the same would be true for anything else that is next. Um, I'm also not naive. I know that um, it would not be uh, – there are a lot of folks who say, there's more for you to do outside of the council. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've named a whole bunch of different roles. Um, I'm not set on an, another destination. I see a lot of work right here that I need to focus on um, for my district and impact that I want to have. And I'm in an election year this year. I'm running again. And this is an opportunity to have a greater impact. And if there's something else down the line, I'm not close to it. Um, I'm just not setting my intention there just yet. All right. Right. Well, um, I heard you recently uh, in a talk say government has to include more stories. Um, and, and you've certainly, I think, brought your story to the work you do. And, and we're uh, just uh, grateful that you brought it here to the podcast to share with us today. Oh, so, thank you. Andrea and thank you Campbell, for having, having thank, me. Thank you again. Hope to have you back again. And this has been another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Life. Life.